Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Mike's podcast, and I'm here with my daughter, Kate. Kate, say hi and tell everybody how old you are. Hi, I'm 12. <laughs> 12. Very excited, 12. And she asked me, actually, like when we first started this podcast a while ago, weeks ago, months ago, be, beginning of quarantine-ish time, if she could come on and and give that greeting. And so we have... We've moved past, though, the Tiger King time. Kate, did you enjoy the Tiger King? Yes, I did very much. Let me let me ask you a Tiger King question. Did Carol Baskin kill her husband? Yes. <laughs> oh, that's very, very definitive. That's strong. Hopefully we don't get sued by her on, <laughs> on Mike's podcast here. So, Kate, I wanted to ask you as we got going, we are now, we're in like 70-something days of um, of school being shut down, of kind of what we've called it quarantine. It's technically stay at home. Um, what has been something that you have really enjoyed about this time? What have you liked? Um, I like sleeping in, and I like it that school is like cut short. Because <laughs> that school is cut short. So you've been you've been okay with the way that school has been done around here in our neck of the woods. I don't like online school, but I like that it's shorter. Okay, that's fair enough. And then what is something that you have not liked about our time in quarantine? Um, I have not liked not seeing my friends every day. Yeah, that's been hard. But but we found some ways recently for you to get to see some friends. What has worked out as ways that we have that everybody has felt comfortable for, for friends to see each other? Um, going on like socially distant bike rides. Socially distant bike rides have been working out for us. And then um, when quarantine is over, when you're allowed to start like being with people again, hang out with people, what is the thing that you most want to be able to do? I want to go with my friends to yogurt land. Oh, that was very specific. I I hadn't heard that specificity yet. Okay, that's good. Now, um, before before we jump into the rest of Mike's podcast where I talk about Job and things that you aren't going to listen to. Actually, let me ask you, have you listened to Mike's podcast yet? Not on purpose. <laughs> How did you listen to it on accident? There was one night that your Spotify was hooked onto mine and you changed it from my music to your podcast. Wow. How, how did you feel about having to, to listen to Mike's podcast? Well, I kind of like paused it and I don't think you realized that. <laughs> so you're not a fan of, of listening to me talk or you feel like you listen to me talk enough? Like what's, what's the deal? Why don't you want to listen to Mike's podcast? I already listened to you talk enough. <laughs> you get you get enough of it. Okay. Well, before before we jump into our last section on Job, actually, let me ask you another question before we get off here. You have you have taught me some um, some slang terms so I can so I can keep up with the kids. So let's let's learn the definition of a few terms because I think um, some of the people who are listening to this are around my age ish, give or take maybe ten years. And so we gotta we gotta stay hip with the kids. So uh, let's start with yeet. What what does it mean to yeet? Yeet is a complicated word, but it kind of means to throw something. Like I yeeted you across the room. Okay, and you also say yeet out. Yeah, that's kind of like when you yeet out, you like, you yeet out, like you leave. 
Okay, so another one uh, that I have learned from you is bet. Why don't, why don't you tell us what bet means? Bet is kind of like when someone says something and they're challenging you to it and you're like, all right, bet. All right, bet. So bet is like, I'm in. I'll, I'm going to give that a try. Yes. Okay. And then Gucci. Gucci gets used a lot by you and your friends. Gucci is like, that's so cool. Okay, Gucci. Um, the, a term that I learned when, when our family was uh, whitewater rafting together, we were down, going down a part of the river that was calm, and there were some other people that were in the river at that time, and there was this kid in the river, and he yells at us as we're going by him, and he says, skirt, skirt. And I said, Kate, what does skirt, skirt mean? And, and so tell us about skirt, skirt. Skirt, skirt means yeeting out. <laughs> and so you told me that, and I was like, you are not allowed to define a slang term with another slang term. So skirt, skirt, why would you use skirt, skirt? What does that mean? I just told you it means yeeting out. That means leaving. Okay. Thank you. So now, now, friends, you can be hip with the kids. Thanks, Kate. Well, that was a good time there with Kate. Um, and I, I'm realizing as I just listened back to all of that before I recorded this portion that um, why did I not end the interview with yeet out? I mean, if I've learned anything, you would think that I would be doing that. Um, so hopefully, hopefully you can be hip with the kids now. Um, we are going to we're going to wrap up our time in Job. This will be our fifth, uh, the fifth part of a five-part series in Job. I've called kind of our time together in Job. I've called it When My Answers Don't Work, because I think that's really been one of the major themes that my experience of the book of Job has been, is that Job is this book where where uh, uh, there's this guy wrestling through his answers that used to work no longer working, and how he handles that, and how his friends handle that, and how God handles that with him, and what he does with all of that. And I started all of this, I started all of this kind of early on in the experience that we were all having on COVID. And I was just, I was just looking up. And for me, as I'm recording this, this is day 73 of sort of like our own kind of lockdown, stay at home order, whatever that has sort of meant and looked like for you. This is our 73rd day of it that I've, that I've been in. And when I started this, I, um, I had some questions that I was asking. I had some things that weren't sitting well, and some of that I've talked about in some of the earlier episodes. And um, and I just I, I I'd spent a bit of time in Job, but not a ton of time in Job, to be quite frank. And I thought I think this book has something to say to this moment. And I think this book has something to say to me right now. And um, and I was hoping for voices who are going to engage in it. And I wasn't experiencing that. I've I've since gotten to hear a few others who have started to engage in it, um, but I wasn't hearing it at the time. And so so I started doing my own work and started doing my own research and called up a friend who's an Old Testament scholar to talk me through some of it and just started finding all of this richness in it. And so before we kind of wrap up our time here, I just kind of want to review where we have been in understanding in understanding this ancient book. One of the things that we said early on is that Job really is written like a play. And, and it's not really overly concerned as to whether it's historically accurate or not. That's not really the question. It's asking bigger questions. 
it's not even asking the question. You have this scene with the Satan really early on and this wager between God and the Satan, which is this such interesting scene that's going on there. But it's actually such a minor part in the book. And sometimes when we talk about Job today, if you spend any kind of time talking about Job, researching it, um, listening to anybody preach on it, those first two chapters get all kinds of weight put on it. But the Satan like moves out of the picture. And so it seems to just simply be, if this is set up like a play, seems to simply be a foil to set up this larger sort of narrative arc that is getting at in here where there are these long like soliloquies, these long like uh, monologues of just kind of back and forth, back and forth, almost like sort of Shakespearean. And what Job is actually asking us to do is to not is to not try and figure out what role does God and Satan play in suffering. It's it's not figuring that out. And it's not trying to figure out, like, is there what, was there an actual historical person named Job where these actual things happened to? It's not asking us that. It It's a story that's inviting us into it because the experiences of Job and the experiences of Job's friends and what plays out there are our experiences. And so if we can move past, if we can move past some of these these questions that are kind of like low level, maybe we could call them questions and not low level in a way, not in like a demeaning way, but meaning like there are bigger things to be asked. And if we can allow it to ask us these bigger things, then then we'll get into like, that's where the good stuff is. And, And by the way, friends, that's where the good stuff often is in the scriptures. We get caught up in things of minutia, some of the stuff that we argue about that it's like, what is going on? And we miss, we miss, we miss some of the richness and the bigness and the things that the scriptures are inviting us into. And so so we asked this question with Job, and we've asked it over over all of these weeks, like, what is this story trying to say to us? And, and, and as it invites us into it, what is it challenging us with? And so we spent our first time together kind of beginning to set the stage, and we saw this guy, Job, who is comfortable. He had a a life that his comfort was normal, and he'd gotten used to it, and then he just loses all of it. And he's then confronted with this question of, who will I become when the comfort that's been normalized in my life has been taken away? And, And we said that when that happens to us, when what's comfortable and what's normalized in that comfort has been taken away from us, we might not have control over it being taken from us, but we can control who we become when it's taken from us. And so we we let the story ask us that the first uh, time we were together. Then, then the second part of it, we saw, we saw that Job's friends had noticed his suffering. And we saw that what they did is they sat with him in his suffering. And we talked about the idea that our normal reaction to any kind of suffering is that we're uncomfortable with it. And so we try and avoid it. And rather than, rather than like engaging in it, we avoid it instead of learning to sit in it. And so we talked about what it means to sit with our own suffering and to also sit with the suffering of others and to allow space for that. And then, and then we moved into another part of Job, and, and we said that Job's friends, they respond really well by sitting with Job in his suffering. They see him in pain, and they notice it, and they sit in suffering with him, but they then move out of that, and they all of a sudden they begin to have answers. They no longer are experiencing empathy for Job, but they have a way to fix his pain. Because what happens is that when you feel out of control, you, you try to regain control. And one of the ways that we try to regain control of an experience where we're out of control is we try to make sense of it. 
even even when it's something that can't be made sense of, even when it's something where it's like there's no good explanation for this, there's no way of making sense of this. But even even when it's like that, because it's out of control, our most natural reaction is to want to control it, and so then we we try to make sense of it. We try to have all of the answers. We try to like show how everything lines up and works. And by the way, in the church, we have done this so often, and to the detriment of others at times, we have explained their suffering. We've explained their pain. We've tried to make sense of it. And when often my experience as a pastor, I've pastored for over two decades, and my experience was when people would ask, like, why is there suffering and why is there pain? When people would ask, like, why why do bad things happen to good people? When they would ask those sorts of, like, weighty questions, they, they actually weren't looking for a theological response. They were looking for an empathetic response. That, that I, especially early on in my career, I would give them the right answers. I would tell them the Bible verses. I would give this theology that made sense of it and how things line up. And, and it just would leave people feeling they were lacking because they weren't looking for an explanation. They were, they were looking for me to enter into it with them. They were looking to know that they haven't been abandoned and that they haven't been forgotten and that there's a God who actually does care about them and isn't leaving them alone. And so they weren't looking for me to make sense of free will and why pain is necessary in a world of free... They, they, it just wasn't that. And so so often what we do in the church is we, we shortchange sitting with people and their suffering because we want to make sense of it. And really, it's a way for us to try to regain control when things feel out of control. And so we talked, we talked during that time, during our, our the third part of this, about all the well-meaning ways that people of faith try to have answers, and all the well-meaning ways that people of faith try to make sense of something. And we said, it often feels trite. And, and we said, well, what do we do, though, when our experience doesn't match our theology? When the thing that we're going through, the answers that we had, it no longer works. And, and we said, what we do in that space is we release the need to control. We release the need to have all the answers. We release the need to control God and fully define God and to make sense of everything. And there is this path towards deeper, richer experiences of faith that can only be experienced through surrender, which is a releasing of control. And then, and then we talked our fourth time together was we talked about the, the direction that Job takes when his theology doesn't match with his experience. What does he do when he experiences that? And, and we talked about what it means to honestly, to sit honestly in tension, where, where we don't give up where we have been, and we don't just throw away what we have understood, but we don't just run right back to that. We sit in the tension that things actually aren't fully making sense. And so we talked about this pattern of the Psalms that a, a scholar named Walter Brueggemann has shown us, that, and we said that this, this pattern, this pattern of, uh, of orientation and disorientation and reorientation becomes a pattern for our own faith development. And we said that a theology and an understanding and an engagement that happens on the other side of suffering that goes through disorientation, that it it carries a different weight and it carries a different maturity that you can only experience if you allow yourself to go through that period of disorientation. So that's that's sort of where we left off. And then we picked up last week, 
or last week, it is hard for me to break out of like preacher mode of doing sermon series. And last week we talked about this, but our last time, our last episode together, we had my friend Luke in here talking about uh, his new book and the work that he's done around befriending your monsters and and um, confronting fear and engaging fear rather than running from fear, which I think has so much overlap with what we've been with what we've been learning from Job. And so today I want to want to wrap all of our time up in Job together by looking at something um, that. When I called up this friend, is this Old Testament scholar, when I called her up, she one of the things that she pointed out to me from the book of Job that I found super helpful, I found so much that she pointed out super helpful, but there is this one thing that I just had never noticed before that um, that really has struck me, and I've just been, it's been rattling around in my brain quite a bit, and it's this change of tone that Job takes on in the 24th chapter. Let, let me read you just a couple of portions of it. Here's, here's uh, the first two verses of Job 24. He says, Why does the Almighty not set times for judgment? Why must those who know him look in vain for such days? So we've heard this kind of like complaining from Job before, like, God, what are you doing? Why are you not taking care of the junk that's happening? And then he says this in verse 2, There are those who move boundary stones... They pasture flocks that have been stolen. So what he begins talking about here is he, he says, there are people who are mistreating others. There are people who are taking from others. They're moving boundary stones. They're changing the boundary markers of land. Their, their, their pasture flocks have been stolen. There are people who are taking flocks away from others. And so in some sort of way, they're taking advantage of them, and it seems that they're able to get away from it. It seems that somehow the people who are taking have some sort of advantage over the people who are being taken from, and that they don't have recourse. They're not able to do something, and so they're just at this loss. And he's like, God, why aren't you doing anything about it? Listen as he goes on, verse 3 and 4, he says, They drive away the orphan's donkey, and they take the widow's ox in pledge. They thrust the needy from the path, and they force all the poor in the land into hiding. Now, the orphan and the widow in this cultural moment, they were the most vulnerable in society, and they're being taken away from. And so they don't have a voice. I mean, and often in antiquity, they didn't have any kind of recourse. They were just kind of forgotten. They were stepped over. They were, they, they were just sort of pushed out to the margins. And, and Job is like, look at what's happening to them. They are being taken advantage of. The people who are walked all over in society, the people who have no voice in society, the people who have been forgotten and pushed aside, look at what's happening to them. Look at, look at the plight that they're going through, that they, they, they are being, it says that they thrust the needy from the path. They force the poor. They're doing these, and people are doing these intentional things to those who have been pushed aside in society. They're not being cared for well. Now, Remember, Job, Job at the beginning of the story, he had a lot. He was wealthy. He was fairly well off. His kids, they would throw these parties and they would be taken care of without having to worry about and think about where does all this come from? And so he could, he could live his life in a way where he was isolated. He could isolate himself from the suffering of others. He could be in his home. He could be in his space. He could be surrounded by his servants. And he didn't have to engage in the plight and the suffering of others. Maybe he would be told about it. Maybe he would 
understand about it. Maybe he would read about it. Maybe every once in a while he would even like tweet about it. But he didn't have to like actually touch it. He didn't have to come into contact with it. He didn't have to experience it. And so for a whole portion, a whole large portion of the book of Job, Job is asking, why is this happening to me? I have gone through all this pain. I've had everything taken away from me. I've lost everything. I did everything right. I was good and righteous. I had the right theology. I did all of the right things, and now it's being taken away from me. By, by the way, uh, my friend, uh, this Bible scholar, she was, she was saying that Job is this clashing between like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Proverbs is a place where all the answers make sense. Where it's like the world works in this way. You do these things and you get these rewards. Do this, this is the outcome. But Ecclesiastes is like, what the crud is going on? And the the world doesn't make sense anymore. And it's this clashing, it's this clashing of these two sort of different experiences happening there. And so Job is like, and this is Ecclesiastes kind of moment, why is this happening to me? But he's consumed in his own experience. He's consumed in his own suffering. But then Job 24 becomes this different language, this other language that moves beyond him. Listen, listen to another portion of it, verse 12 and 13. It says, The groans of the dying rise from the city, and the souls of the wounded cry out for help. But God charges no one with wrongdoing. There are those who rebel against the light, who do not know its ways or stay in its paths. And so now, now instead of it being, God, why aren't you doing anything for me? He's shifted a bit, and he's like, God, why aren't you doing anything for them? He seems to now recognize the plight of others. It's, it's almost as if him going through his own suffering and experiencing his own pain and even being really honest about it and becoming aware of it and not avoiding it and not running from it, but sitting in it and, and just having these honest, like all outs with both God and with his friends. It's like all of that has opened up his eyes and made him more aware of the suffering of others. And the thing is, like, you know what this is like because you've experienced this. You, you've been through this in your own life. Like maybe, maybe you were that kid in school who was bullied. And so now that you're an adult, you, you, notice, you notice that more. You have more compassion for the kids who are bullied. Maybe even you have compassion for the bully. And your own sort of suffering in that experience growing up has shaped the way that you are like seeing the world and you're seeing bullies all over the place in ways that those of us who weren't bullied in that same way didn't experience it. Or you grew up without a father or you grew up, you grew up in a way where you were not like cared for well by adults and that shaped you in a way where you noticed the vulnerable and those who are not being cared for well and those who aren't being looked out for. You you lost a child in some sort of way, that horrific, hard experience, and that opened you up in a way, like opened up your heart for those who have had that same kind of experience and are going through that. And oftentimes, oftentimes the places where we have the most compassion, the places where our eyes have been opened up the most are in the places of our own pain and our own suffering. It's 
it's kind of like this psychological phenomenon that, that gets called the, the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. And, and the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon happens whenever you buy a new car. Have you had those times where like you go and you buy a new car and, and then when you get it, suddenly you see it on the road everywhere. You never noticed it before, right? But now, but now you see it everywhere you go and you're like, nobody had this car before. Why does everyone now all of a sudden have this car? And it's, and it's not because everyone all of a sudden has this car. You are now more aware of it because what happens is that your brain is taking in new information and your mind now is recognizing it with more frequency because it's sort of gotten this heightened sense. And that's in some ways you could say that's what happens when you're suffering. You become more attuned to see suffering uh, because, because now you've experienced it, you've taken it in, and your eyes are open to it. But the experience with suffering is more than that. It's beyond that. For Job, it's not just, oh, I see it there. But it's like now he's fighting for them. He doesn't just recognize that there's suffering there. He's, he's advocating for them. And so it's not just that he notices it, but, but this empathy develops within him where he starts to become an advocate for others. And it's interesting because what this suffering does is he becomes an advocate for others in a way that has no benefit to him. This is this transformative effect that suffering can actually have, that pain can actually do within you, where you begin to care for and to work for the good of others in a way that it doesn't, it doesn't like benefit you at all. It doesn't do anything for you other than that you you begin to know this is good and right and true, and I want to enter into that with others. I was, um, maybe a year or two ago now, I was hiking with a friend, and as we're hiking, the, the trail had gotten narrow, and it was essentially like a single track trail at this point where we had to stand um, in a single file in order to go up the trail, and as we were going up it, we keep encountering people who are coming down the trail. And because it was so narrow, what we had to do is we would, as they were coming down, we would step up onto the side of the mountain so that they could walk by us. And, and after this had happened three, four, five times, he, he, he says something to me. He says, Mike, you know, um, you and I, like, we've been pretty lucky in our lives. So people have regularly stepped out of the way for us, that we've been able to, in the way that we lived our lives, in, in the opportunities that we've been given, people were regularly stepping out of the way for us. We rarely had to be the person who was stepping out of the way to let others by. He said, so what happened to us is that we stopped noticing. We stopped noticing that people were stepping out of the way. We were just, we were hiking our path. We were going along and people kept stepping out of our way and we didn't even realize that they were because we were just, we were happily hiking along. He said, but there's some people, some people who constantly are the ones who've been stepped over. They're constantly the ones who stepped aside. They're constantly the ones who, as others have moved forward in society, that they have moved forward by stepping over them. They've moved forward because they're hiking their path, and these are the people who have stepped aside, who have gotten out of the way. And he said, Mike, it seems to me that the people who are the ones who've constantly stepped aside are the ones who are most strongly advocating for others. They're the ones who seem to care the most about others who've been forgotten. It seems, it seems that maybe that maybe when you have been the person who's regularly stepped aside, you've been the person who's regularly been stepped over, you have the best eyes to see who is being stepped over now. 
And it was just like this massive realization hit me that it is harder for me to have the eyes to see some of that because of what my experiences in life have been. And what happens for Job is that he he experiences his suffering and because of the way that he's being treated, because of what he's going through, because of what his friends are saying to him, because of because of all of that, it's giving him these new eyes to see suddenly he's been the one who's been able to hike and everyone steps out of his way and he doesn't even realize it. Now he's the one who's being stepped over. He's the one who's on the side as others are walking by. And now all of a sudden he has these new eyes to see everybody who's been the ones who are stepping aside. And it compels with him to not just to not just notice it, but to become an advocate, to do something, to want to, to want to like see something happen for them. And friends, you and I, you and I right now, during COVID, many of us are becoming much more familiar with some kind of suffering. And, and remember, we talked, we talked several times ago about the idea that suffering isn't a comparison and nobody wins in the comparison game. Like, yeah, there are people who have had worse suffering than you and there are people who haven't suffered as much as you, but nobody wins in that comparison game. Your, your own story is unique to you. But the reality is that most of us have experienced some level of suffering during this time. Things aren't maybe as easy for you as they were just a few months ago. There have been experiences that you've lost out on, plans that aren't happening. You've taken a financial hit. You are experiencing chaos in your home. Depression depression is on the rise across the board. In some, in some sort of way, you're experiencing some kind of suffering in your life right now. And Richard Rohr, I love what he says about our pain, that he says that if we don't transform our pain, we'll surely transmit it. That if our pain, when it hits us, if it doesn't become something that gets transformed, then what's going to happen is we become people who transmit that pain. And so the person who grows up without a father, if that pain doesn't transform them, then they become the kind of person that just transmits that pain to their own children or to other kids or just out onto society, to the person who who lost some someone significant to them. And that pain doesn't transform you. You end up turning inward on bitterness, and that bitterness gets transmitted out. Things have happened to you that are outside of your control. And suffering, suffering really is any time that something is happening to you that you have no control over, that you have a loss of control. When that suffering happens to you, like, does it, is it transforming you or are, or is it becoming something that you are transmitting to others? And so the question is not whether or not we'll experience pain and suffering, because we will. The question is, what will it do to us? Will we let it soften us? Will we let it move us? Will we let it cause us to see others in their pain and their distress and their forgottenness? Or does it like harden us? One of the questions that I've been learning to ask um, myself when I, when I respond to others, when I respond to situations, when there's something on the news, when somebody posts something on social media, when somebody says something to me, one of the questions when I'm in a healthy place one of the questions that I've learned to ask myself is this, is my response moving me towards cynicism or is my response moving me towards compassion? Is my response making me more cynical towards others, more cynical towards humanity, more cynical towards the story that's being told, 
Or is my response developing more compassion within me? Compassion for their story, compassion for their experience, compassion for things that I haven't gone through, things that I don't understand. And it, and what it starts to do is it starts to show me where I need to listen more and where I need to pay attention more. And so the thing, the thing that we've learned about Job is that Job doesn't actually answer the question of why is there suffering. In fact, Job seems pretty uninterested in solving that. That's not an interesting question for the book of Job. But it does force us to ask the question of who am I becoming? That when I hit those places when my answers no longer work, when the pain and suffering in my own life doesn't make sense, when I am frustrated and the stuff that's happening in my life is frustrating me, do, do I get stuck in my frustration? Or does my own pain transform me to be somebody who notices and advocates for others? Does my own pain transform me to become somebody who pays attention to the pain and suffering that might not be my experience? And it might not be something I fully understand, but it, it can be something that I care about. And so Job confronts us and, and asks us, what will you do with your pain and suffering? What will it do to you? What will it do in you? Who, who are you going to become as a result of it? And so for Job, Job, Job has this moment where he starts to become this person who notices the pain and the plight and the suffering of others, of the people who have been stepped over and who have stepped aside. He begins to notice that, and he begins to advocate for them begins to advocate for a group of people who has no benefit to him to advocate for them. It does nothing to him. It does not fix his life. It does not put him in a better financial position. It does not put together the pieces of his life that have been broken and taken apart, but there is something whole and beautiful and redemptive that happens in you when you allow your pain to move you into that sort of a space. And so my friends, my friends, as we wrap up our time together in Job, the question that Job is asking us is who who will you become? So we're going to move on, move on from here. We will, we'll have some times where we do some stuff like this, some little, little sermons that I'll drop in. We'll do some things. We've got some other stuff to talk about, and then I have no idea where all it will go from here. I'll, I'll have some, some other interesting friends that, um, that we'll have on from time to time to just to, to ask them and to learn from them about richer experiences of faith and, um, and how we learn to live into that more. Um, but I'm so grateful for you. I'm grateful for those of you that I've gotten to hear from, those of you that are um, downloading and tuning in. I appreciate all of you that are passing this on to others, that are um, on iTunes, uh, 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 giving us ratings and reviews on there. Uh, if you would consider doing that, I would love for you to do that. It's really kind of you. Um, and then I'm going to have some some new sort of things that I'm going to be um, engaging in in helping in helping just a, a handful of people in their faith journey and I'll probably be telling you about that next time hopefully we'll have something together then um, but until our next time together grace and peace to you my friends <laughs>